I know it's an incredible story. I, of all people, know this. And you won't believe me. No, not at first. But I'm going to tell you the whole thing. Then you will believe. Because you must believe the story of the howling man. So begins the short story, The Howling Man, by Charles Beaumont. It's about a man who awakes and finds himself in a monastery in Europe being cared for by some monks. The man, David Ellington, had passed out in the countryside, suffering from an illness, and was found by a group of monks who carried him to their monastery to nurse him back to health. After coming in and out of consciousness, David Ellington thought he was dreaming again when he heard the screaming. The story continues. Then the sound of screaming. I awoke. The scream shrilled on. Clucks and loud, high, cutting, like a cry for help. What is that sound? I asked. The monk, Christophorus, smiled. Sound? I hear no sound, he said. It stopped. I nodded. I'm dreaming, probably. Time passed slowly. As I fought the sickness, the dreams grew less vivid, but the night cries did not diminish. They were full of terror and loneliness as before. Strong, real in my ears. I tried to shut them out, but they would not be shut out. Still, how could they be strong and real except in my vanishing delirium? Brother Christophorus did not hear them. I watched him closely when the sunlight faded to the gray of dusk and the screams began. But he was deaf to them if they existed. If they existed. Be still, my son. It is the fever that makes you hear these noises. That is quite natural. Is that not quite natural? Sleep. But the fever is gone. I'm sitting up now. Listen, do you mean to tell me that you don't hear that? I hear only you, my son. The screams that 14th night continued till dawn. They were totally like any other sounds in my experience. Impossible to believe that they could be uttered and sustained by a human, yet they did not seem to be animal. I listened there, in the gloom, my hands balled into fists, and knew suddenly that one of two things must be true. Either someone or something was making these ghastly sounds, and Brother Christophorus was lying, or I was going mad. Hearing voices mad, climbing walls and frothing mad. I'd have to find the answer I knew, and by myself. Well, eventually David Ellington found the room where the screams were coming from, and the story continues. A thick door made of oak or pine was before me. Behind it were the screams. A chill went through me on the edge of those unutterable shrieks of hopeless, helpless anguish, and for a moment I considered turning back. Not to my room, not to my bed of straw, but back into the open world. But duty held me. I took a breath and walked up to the narrow bar cross window and looked in. A man was in the cell on all fours, circling like a beast, his head thrown back. A man. 
Well, in time, David Ellington would learn that there was no man in the cell. The one making those hideous noises was none other than the devil himself. Brother Jerome, the leader of the monastery, would soon reveal that they had caught the devil and had him trapped in a cell. And this was the reason why wars had ceased and there was relative peace in the world. But David Ellington did not believe them. He could not believe that the man in the cell was actually the devil. And David Ellington soon found himself outside the cell again where the devil tricked him into setting him free. And David Ellington would have to live with this thought for the rest of his life as wars increased and suffering ensued. The thought he would live with forever was this, I set the devil free. The Howling Man is one of Charles Beaumont's classic short stories. And if you're privy to classic sci-fi shows, then you know that it ended up on television screens in 1960. But The Howling Man is not only found in a book of short stories. You can find a howling man in the Bible, specifically in a book of prayers and songs called Psalms. You can find a howling man in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, and his name is David. In fact, the late preacher Charles Spurgeon described David as a howling man in his introduction to Psalm 13. Spurgeon said this, we have been wont to call this the how long psalm. We had almost said the howling psalm from the incessant repetition of the cry, how long. Charles Spurgeon was tempted to call Psalm 13 the howling psalm. And he was on to something because Psalm 13 could, in fact, be titled the Howling Psalm. Psalm 13 could have a prescript that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the howling man. Just like the screams that David Ellington heard in the short story by Charles Beaumont, we too hear David's cries in this psalm. We hear his moans, we hear his howls, his groans, his shrieks, his screams. And that's why this psalm is considered a lament psalm. The lament psalms are prayers and cries to God in times of need, whether sickness or affliction, slander, crisis, or trouble. And it comes as no surprise that there are more lament psalms in the book of Psalms than there are praise psalms. This should not surprise us because life is full of heartache, trouble, sorrow, and pain. And that's why we are back in the book of Psalms again for the summer. Two years ago in the summer of 2013, we walked through Psalms 1 through 12, and we called that series the soundtrack of our lives. And those sermons are available online, and you can go listen to them if you weren't here, if you're interested. But this summer, we're going back to where we left off, and we will begin in Psalm 13. And I've titled this series, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. I stole that title from an album by one of my favorite bands, The Flaming Lips, but that's beside the point. I chose that title, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart, because these psalms are like transmissions to God. These psalms are prayers to God. And if you're like me, you find yourself 
you find your heart drifting from Jesus often, like a satellite out in space, floating in orbit. So these psalms become the transmissions, the the prayers that we send to God. And they strike a nerve with all believers because everybody loves the psalms, right? Every believer at some point in their life has turned to the book of Psalms to find comfort and healing and hope. And the reason why we love the Psalms so much is because in the Psalms, all of our emotions are brought before the face of God. The Psalms have a way of making you feel like someone has been reading your diary or reading your journal. The Psalms capture the essence of what it is to be a believer in a fallen broken world. The Psalms have a way of exposing your heart, your wayward heart, your satellite heart, and then directing it back to Jesus, your prophet, your priest, and your king. So what we'll see in this transmission from David's satellite heart, what we'll see in this prayer in Psalm 13 is this. You can pray this way. You can pray this way. You can pray just like David does in this psalm. And how does David pray? He prays just like Charles Spurgeon described him. David prays like a howling man. David questions God in this psalm. David tries to motivate God to answer his prayer in this psalm. David prays like a man at the end of his rope. David prays like a man at his wit's end. And in the end, the end of this psalm, David prays in faith, trusting in Yahweh's steadfast love. And you can pray that way too. Because that's why this psalm was written and included in Israel's worship. Psalm 13 was written to encourage afflicted believers who felt abandoned by God and to point them to the faithfulness of their Redeemer. And ultimately, Psalm 13 was written to point us to Jesus, our Redeemer. So now let's look at David's howling prayer. And by way of reminder, the name Lord that's in all capital letters that you see in verse 1 and throughout this psalm, it's the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's his personal name. So the English translators are tipping us off to the fact that in Hebrew, when you see all capital letters Lord, they're letting us know that in the Hebrew Bible, this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. That's what the all caps Lord means there. So you'll hear me refer to Yahweh a lot. That's just God's covenant name in Hebrew. Now look at verses one through two with me and hear the word of Yahweh. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Well, right off the bat, you get the sense that this is not just a say a quick prayer before the meal kind of prayer. This is not a say a quick prayer for traveling mercies before you start a journey kind of prayer. This is not a prayer like that. This is the prayer of someone at the end of their rope. This is the prayer of someone who is barely hanging on by a thread. And you get that with the first four words. How long, O Lord? How long, O Yahweh? 
The sentence, though, is incomplete. It's as if David can't even complete his first sentence. How long, O Lord? He can't even finish asking Yahweh how long. He cuts himself off. How long, O Lord? And then he asks if Yahweh will forget him forever. That's how David feels. David feels like the Lord has forgotten him. He doesn't mean that God has actually lost memory of David. What he means is that Yahweh has not come to his aid. In the Old Testament, when the Lord remembers someone, it means that he comes to their aid and acts on their behalf. That's what the Hebrew word zakar, to remember, means. So David feels like Yahweh has not remembered him, has not acted on his behalf, has not come to help him, has not answered his prayer. So David feels forgotten and abandoned by God. And David doesn't stop there. He keeps piling up the how longs. Four times David asks or howls the how longs. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Literally, the phrase take counsel in my soul means wrestle with my soul. David is wrestling in his heart with his feelings and his emotions and his thoughts. He's sad. He feels hopeless. And this isn't just an occasional thing. He says this happens all the day. This is an everyday thing for David. All day, every day, this is how he feels. He can't get away from it. And to borrow a phrase and then twist it from the Jesus Storybook Bible, David would say that his sorrow and pain is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever funk. David just can't get out of the funk that he is in. He can't get a break. He's at his wit's end. And the reason why is because his enemies are winning. His enemies are exalted over him. They are gloating. His enemies seem to be in, in control. They seem to be unfazed by life in a fallen, broken world. So David is in despair and he is exhausted. Haven't you been here before? You need God to answer you. And it seems like he's not listening. You ask and plead and pray and nothing. You try to keep going, but you're just so overwhelmed that you think you'll cave in. How do you pray in times like that? Here's how you pray. David teaches us. You ask God a lot of questions. You ask God a lot of questions. You interrogate him. You be humble about it. You don't be arrogant. You don't act arrogantly. You humble yourself, but you simply come like a child and you ask questions. God already knows what's going inside your heart anyway, right? He already knows what you're thinking and feeling, so you might as well fess up to him. And that gives you the freedom to just pour your heart out to dump it all on Jesus, to tell God everything you're feeling, everything that you're thinking, to just pour it all into God's ear. Howl if you must. Oh, 
howl like this. Why is this happening, Lord? How long must this go on? How long until you answer me? Are you going to forget me and not intervene? How long, Jesus, do I have to wrestle with my own soul? How many more sleepless nights, Lord? How many more pounds am I going to lose because I'm not eating? How long, oh Lord, how long, how long, how long? Listen, Grace, you can pray this way. You can pray this way. God is big enough to handle your questions. He already knows that you're asking this and feeling this in your heart, so you might as well just pour it all into his ear anyway. You can howl like this. You can howl a long, how long, and your Father in heaven can handle it. He wants it. He wants you to hit rock bottom and then reach out. Why? Because number one, it glorifies him as the one who gives all sufficient grace. And number two, because that's where God lives. He lives at the bottom. When you reach the end of your rope, he's there. When you reach your wit's end, he's there. And he can handle you howling at him about how things are in your life. And when you do that, when you pour it all into his ear, you'll be surprised how freeing it is, how comforting it is. And that's where David eventually ends up in this prayer, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. We have verses three to four to look at first, so look there with me. He says this, Consider and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. See, David is not just content to dump it out all on Yahweh. He wants Yahweh to look and to see and to consider his situation. Now, this is very interesting to me anyway, because David pretty much just told us that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, had not answered any of his prayers concerning his situation. But then David goes on and prays once again to Yahweh. How long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? How long are you going to sit back and not intervene? Will you forget me forever? By the way, consider and answer me. You haven't answered me. I just said that. But answer me. You've been silent, but intervene. You haven't done anything, but do something. You see, that's what faith does. Faith comes along when you're hanging on by your fingernails, when you're waiting and waiting and waiting and you have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and then you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Faith comes along and prays again. Faith keeps praying. That's a sign of faith and trust. You keep on praying. So what do you do when it seems like the Lord is silent? you keep on praying to the God who is not answering. Does that sound like a contradiction? When God is silent and not answering your prayers, you keep praying to him? You keep on praying to the God who is not answering. Is that stupid? Is it stupid to keep praying to the God who hasn't answered? Is that unreasonable? Or is it faith? Is it trust? 
It may be crazy. It may confuse others. It may seem ludicrous, but it just might be the closest thing to faith. It just might be the closest thing to trust. When God is silent, when God seems distant, and you keep on praying and you keep on howling about your situation, then you can file that under faith. See, David may have felt abandoned by God, but it did not cause him to stop praying. He kept praying and praying, and that's why we have verses three through six, because he kept praying, because he didn't stop after verse two. And in verse three, David petitions for the Lord to light up his eyes. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's an interesting phrase in Hebrew. It's used in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 29 by Jonathan when he was with his father's army and Saul, his father, said that no one is to eat anything until all my enemies are wiped out. This kind of brash statement by Saul, nobody eats anything until everybody's dead. Well, Jonathan didn't hear those instructions and they found a honeycomb in the forest and Jonathan ate some. 1 Samuel 14, 27 to 29 says this. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? That's the phrase here in Psalm 13. David wants Yahweh to light up his eyes, to give him a a fresh burst of energy. He wants the Lord to refresh his heart again so that he can face his enemies And his enemies are the reason why David is praying and asking God to light up his eyes and refresh him. But notice how David is using his enemies to motivate the Lord to act on his behalf. David is using his enemies to motivate the Lord to act and intervene on his behalf. Three times David uses the word lest here. Intervene lest or unless I sleep the sleep of death, meaning unless I die. If you don't intervene, God, I'm going to die. Intervene lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. God, if you don't intervene, my enemies are going to go to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and every social media and say, we defeated David. Intervene lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. See, David is trying to motivate God to answer his prayer. He needs a a fresh burst of energy. He needs his heart to be refreshed lest he die, lest his enemies win. David is worried about what his enemies will say about the Lord if he crumbles. So he's trying to motivate Yahweh to answer them. If they win, they're gonna talk bad about you. He's trying to motivate the Lord. What are they going to say about you, God, if they defeat me? See, that may make us uncomfortable. We're not used to using the term motivate God when it comes to prayer. But we should get used to this. 
and we should be praying this way. What does Moses do in Exodus 32 when he tries to keep Yahweh from wiping out the Israelites after the golden calf incident? Remember, Moses went up the mountain for 40 days to get the Ten Commandments. While he was away, they constructed a wooden calf, covered it with gold, and began to say, here's Yahweh, the God who brought us out of Egypt. No, he's up on the mountain with, with Moses. And Moses comes down, and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And what does Moses say? Don't do that. What will the Egyptians say? if you kill all the Israelites, that you brought us out here to the desert just to wipe us out. What are they gonna say about you, God? Moses is trying to motivate the Lord. What are they gonna say about you if you wipe us out? Jesus does this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way, God, that I can redeem our elect people? Any other way than going to the cross? He's trying to get God to answer. Guess what, Grace? You can pray this way. You can tell God why he should answer your prayers. You can lay out a long list of why you need him to answer your prayers. You can tell him what might happen if he doesn't intervene. You can pray this way with humility, of course, expecting God to answer, but also understanding that he might not. He might not answer you, so you have to be humble. But you can pray this way. I think we all have a lot to learn when it comes to prayer. And that's why in his book, Pray With Your Eyes Open, Richard Pratt explains how creative and detailed our prayers should be. He says this, many Christians have difficulty putting their troubles into words when they pray. At home and church, we pick up the idea that only positive words are acceptable in prayer. So we never learn how to express negative attitudes to God. Notice the distinctive manner in which the psalmist speaks of himself. He does not simply say, Lord, I am sad. Instead, he uses a number of images to paint a vivid portrait of himself. In our prayers, we too can use vivid images and detailed descriptions of our condition. If we face rejection, we may feel like worthless rubbish. If this is how we feel, we should express that sentiment in prayer. We should talk about our sense of uselessness. Christians who suffer from loneliness can see themselves withering like thirsting plants. They should communicate their intense longing for a friend in dramatic terms. Prayer gives us the opportunity to tell God what we think about ourselves. Stirring portraits of our lives can help us lay our burdens at the feet of Christ and open ourselves more fully to his comfort and healing. We too are invited to relate detailed and moving accounts of events in our lives. From small irritations to major crises, we may talk with God in detail about our circumstances. All that Richard Pratt is saying is spill the beans when you pray. Tell God about it. Howl if you must. Oh, God! Tell him what might happen if he doesn't answer you. I did this this last week. One of our kids was running a high fever for several days, very high fever. And as a parent, you kind of panic. And I'm saying, God, don't let my baby die. If my baby dies, I'll go crazy. I'll lose it. Grace won't have a pastor. My kids won't have a dad. My wife won't have a husband. I will lose my mind. God, don't let her die. You've got to pray like that. Open it up to God and tell him how, you're, how you feel and, and be detailed and creative in the way that you communicate with your father. Tell him what might happen if he doesn't answer you. Give him reasons why he should answer you. 
Can you make an argument for why God should answer your prayers? Can you think through what might happen if he doesn't answer you and then turn that around and tell that to God? Can you tell him what will or won't happen if he doesn't answer you? Do you give God good reasons why he should answer you? Tell him in detail. He may answer you, he may not. But make your prayers very detailed and be creative. If you're sad, tell God what it feels like. Be very creative in describing your sadness. If you're scared, tell him. If you're scared, tell him. I feel like a little child stuck in a horror movie and Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers are out to get me. That's how I feel. I'm scared, God. If you're scared, tell him. I feel like Frodo in Lord of the Rings when that army of orcs was chasing him. That's how I feel, God. Just tell him how you feel and be creative with it. And you might be surprised how freeing and liberating it is just to spill the beans with God. And you might find yourself actually wanting to pray. Imagine that, wanting to pray. If you're like me, you struggle to pray, you might find yourself wanting to pray to your father when you pray this way. And after you pray like this, you might end up praying like David in the last two verses. Look at verses five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, after all of this questioning in prayer, after all of this trying to get God to motivate God to answer all of this detailed, creative prayer, David has peace. Funny how prayer can bring a sense of peace even though things aren't resolved, huh? And the reason David has peace is because of where his focus is on Yahweh's faithful love. David is trusting, literally in the Hebrew, it's in the unfailing love of you. David is rejoicing, literally in the Hebrew, in the salvation of you. David is now focused on his Redeemer. He is focused on Yahweh's unfailing love. And this is an important Hebrew word that stresses the covenant nature of our God. It's the Hebrew word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. This is Yahweh's covenant love, his, his faithful love, his loyal love. And really, perhaps the best definition of the Hebrew word hesed comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, the kid's Bible. Hesed is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who writes children's Bibles, has been able to condense the word hesed to that short statement. And there are scholars who have racked their brains and I've got a folder this big in my office of articles trying to describe the Hebrew word hesed and Sally Lloyd-Jones hits it out of the park by saying this is God's hesed. It's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love and that's where David's trust is. David puts no trust in his love of Yahweh. David does not trust in his commitment to the Lord, his obedience, his sanctification, his record of putting sin to death. He doesn't even trust in his own faith in Yahweh. 
Why? Because David knows that his commitment stinks. He knows that his faithfulness stinks. His record of obedience stinks. Instead, he's trusting in Yahweh's steadfast love. And that changes everything. Listen, you want to change your life? You want to change the Christian life? Change discipleship? Focus on God's love for you and not your love for God. Focus on God's commitment to you and not your commitment to God. That will radically change the Christian life and turn it upside down the way it's supposed to be. Sadly, we've made the Christian life about our love for God. Our songs are about our love for God. Our prayers are about our love for God. And they should be chock full in Instead, and we should be focused on God's amazing, unending love for us. If you focus on his love for you and not your love for him, you'll walk in the freedom of the gospel. It changes everything. And it changes David's worship songs. David's worship songs center on the Lord's work. They center on the Lord's salvation. David's songs center on his Redeemer And that's why David sings to the Lord. Because the Lord, he says, has been so good to him. The Lord has dealt bountifully with him. David's prayer takes a turn because he turns his attention to the Lord. Things may not have changed in his life. His circumstances may not have changed. But David's focus has. Now he prays, trusting and resting in God's goodness and in God's covenant love. And guess what, Grace? You can pray this way. You can pray this way even if your circumstances never change, even if God never answers you, even if you give him detailed descriptions and reasons why he should answer you. If he doesn't answer you, you can still pray this way. You can pray this way in faith, focused on Jesus, even if Jesus has not intervened the way that you want him to. You can pray this way, and the reason why is simply this. Jesus. Jesus is proof of God's covenant love. Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises. Jesus is living proof that God's love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And the proof of that love is that Jesus died for you. You know that. Jesus died for you. Jesus lived for you. We gotta start there. Jesus lived the life that you could not live fully obeyed the law of God without sin. He lived the perfect life for you, fully obeying God's law, and then Jesus died for you, meaning he went to the cross and bore the curse of the law. He took your shame and guilt and the penalty that you and I deserved upon himself. So he lived for us, fully obeying God's law. He died for us in our place, receiving the judgment that we all deserve by becoming a curse on the cross for us. But then what does Jesus do after the resurrection? He lives to pray for you. That's what Jesus does after the resurrection. He prays for you. He lives to pray for you. That's what Hebrews 7.25 says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And isn't that what prayer is? Drawing near to God through Jesus He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning one of two things, both actually, that he is able to save completely anyone that comes to him. But secondly, I think the writer of Hebrews means that it doesn't matter how far away your satellite heart is. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he lives to make intercession. He lives to pray for you, Christian. When you are at your wit's end, Jesus is at God's right hand praying for you. When you just feel like you cannot go on, Jesus goes to the Father for you. When you feel like God is not answering your prayers, Jesus is howling prayers to God for you. When you feel like all hell is breaking loose around you, you can still pray. You can still pour out your heart to God because Jesus is praying for you. That's the gospel. I don't know about you, but I love that Jesus prays for us. He prays for us even when we don't pray for ourselves. He prays for us when we don't pray for this church or this city, this nation, this world. I love that Jesus prays for me. And that frees all of us up to just pour our hearts out to him. We can wail Cry, yell, bawl, bellow, shriek, scream, and screech, knowing that God listens. And these are the same kinds of prayers that God the Father heard from his own son Jesus when he was on the earth. This is exactly how Jesus prayed. This is how Jesus prayed. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. This is how Jesus prayed. Oh, Father, help me. Help me, God. I'm weak. I'm tired. The enemy is, is tempting me. He wants me to give in. He wants me to disobey. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. This is how Jesus prayed. Jesus was the howling man when he prayed. Oh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears in the exact same way that we are called to pray. So perhaps we should end this sermon the way Charles Beaumont began his short story. But this time we'll not speak of the howling man, the devil. We'll speak of the howling man, Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king. I know it's an incredible story. I, of all people, know this. And you won't believe me. No, not at first, but I'm going to tell you the whole thing then you will believe because you must believe the story of the howling man, Jesus. He lives to make intercession for you. He is your high priest who stands before God for you. He is praying for you even as you pray. He is praying for you even when you fail to pray. And God the Father will answer his prayers. So you can pray with loud cries and moaning and groaning. You can howl. How long? You can pray like that because Jesus is your advocate before the Father. You can pray like that because he is listening. Perhaps we should end this sermon by praying. Heavenly Father, 
we do humble ourselves and readily admit that we don't pray as much as we should. We don't pour our pour out our heart as much as we should. Many times we're not even honest with you and you see our hearts and that's really pretty ridiculous. But thank you for your son who prays for us even when we fail to pray. Thank you that he lives to make intercession for us. God, may we be a people who come to you as children to our father And we just speak our mind. We just pour out our cares and our concerns right into your ear. May we be able to say with David that we trust not in ourselves, but we trust in your steadfast love. Help us, empower us by the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.